everybody. Welcome to Wombat Radio. Today we are at uh, Front Yard in Marrickville. Um, let's start by you could introduce each of yourselves and the project we're going to focus on. Should we introduce each other? Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> okay, well, I'm with Ira Ferris of Artemis Projects and a dear friend and collaborator. Um, Ira has a background as, well, so many wonderful things, a writer, podcaster, um, most incredible interviewer. She's an artist. She's a somatic practitioner. Um, she's involved in a lot of uh, community um, organizations, events, um, such as Alpha Gallery and, oh, what have I missed? Um, <laughs> I think you added a few things. <laughs> And a dance background as well, which is, I guess, leading into our project in a moment. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, much better than I would have introduced myself. Um, And I'm sitting with Elia Bossart. Uh, She is somebody I met about 10 years ago through a performance we've done together with Post, Idipush Midipus, where we performed for one night as part of Sydney Festival and Elia was a dead body. I was a dead body. <laughs> Which was the hardest role to play, actually, um, just yeah. lying still under hot lights. Anyway. Yeah, and yeah, you were just a spark amongst people that were there and we, um, we didn't keep contact we didn't exchange numbers at a time or, or or anything but we kept bumping into each other on the street and every time i would see elia the conversations would just be very pleasant and then 10 years after i guess we started collaborating a bit accidentally uh, and it led to this project space body habit and elia is a musician by background she studied at the corn and she's a flutist and uh, she is also an installation artist. She worked with dancers as part of that, um, a scenographer and conceptual artist, I would say, interested in space and phenomenology. And, uh, yeah, she also runs uh, ADSR Zin, which is an amazing thing that she does with James Hazel, right? Yeah, with James Hazel. Yeah. Hazel, yeah. Which you've been a regular contributor of as well. <laughs> How was that? Been, um, oh. praises, um. <laughs> I was nice actually having an opportunity to um, kind of reflect on how Elia and I came to this journey because yeah. it's just very amazing for me to cross paths with somebody randomly, you know, over a day that we were part of this performance and then the fact that our paths were crossing constantly and it led to this pretty big experience that we just had that was really wonderful but it almost seemed like it was uh, uh, a meant-to-be thing in some way. Mm. Yeah, we'd been rolling towards it for quite a while. I mean, even uh, when we started working on the book I think officially in February this year when we had our residency at Front Yard, but almost we started the work in a way when we had a conversation when you were interviewing me for your podcast at, with Artemis Projects um, in September in 2020, so quite a few months before, and it just brought up a lot of um, 
topics that we were both really interested in around space and moving through space. And I think that was a really, for me at least, that was like a starting point for thinking about how uh, we can explore these topics together through conversation. Tell me about exploring topics together through conversations that don't happen in words because of having dance background and music background. Those also seem to be discourses that can happen in their own mediums. As part of this project in particular, or are you uh, asking yeah, more? And as part of your uh, sensitivity or mm-hmm. uh, fandom or mm. <laughs> of um, the power of not reducing things to words and having discourse in their own medium. Oh, I'm... You want to say everything right now, hey? Everything and nothing. Uh, I mean, it's reducing the language and words is something that I'm really interested in. And I'm questioning how big obstacle the language is. And maybe because I'm coming from another language background. So it was brought to my attention as somebody who operates in a language that's foreign to me Mm -hmm. to an extent. Um, so how much is lost when we try to communicate with words and how much is there in silence mm. is really interesting to me. Um, and I think it's really hard to achieve. It's like stillness in dance. It's, it's the hardest thing, but the most beautiful thing to, mm. to see that somebody can hold their body with integrity and speak so much. Mm. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it was really challenging actually to try and articulate a lot of the ideas that we experience in our own practices. So for me, it's a visual practice and a spatial practice. And so to try and find words um, that describe a sensation in space, I found really hard. And then also to know that these words are becoming concrete in a way through remaining as a conversation written down in a book Um, and that's something that we actually we did address in the book as well is this idea of making things concrete and how can we move beyond words and um, descriptions once they're already stated is there a way to kind of for example if we're describing a space is there a way to make a description that is open enough to allow future interpretation or fluidity within that description of a space for example Mm. to make a live experience of it again Mm. Mm. how freezing the words can be once we describe a space to you you're observing or knowing it through this prism that we give you and your experience of it is not present anymore so we spoke about written language as opposed to the oral histories Mm. and how much is lost when we put things on paper Mm. but then we also brought in the reader who always comes afresh Mm. and even when things are on paper when they're locked in that way the way that we read them we give them life again Mm. through the reading process so maybe it's impossible to freeze things Mm. Mm. Well, even now, speaking about the book again, 
feels like it's freeing it up or, you know, thinking about the ideas in the book again. I was thinking about, um, oh, hang on, I've just lost my thought. <laughs> Wait, no, I'm going to circle back around. Just give me a moment. If you... <laughs> oh. It's okay. It's not live and it's not tape. Okay, okay. No, I've got it now. <laughs> um, I was thinking before coming here today about what we explored in the book in the conversations and this idea of being concrete and already in just a few months since the book has come out um, I feel like I've moved on from some of the ideas mm. there's always this kind of development that we have as people and so to make something concrete I guess it's just a marker in time perhaps of how we were feeling in the moment but then just acknowledging that we always are moving beyond that as well that reminds me there is this beautiful thing that Susan Zontag says that she writes things down in order to stop thinking them mm. so she frees herself from this particular way of thinking mm. by putting it on the paper expressing it so she maybe the, the way I was reading that is don't come back to me thinking that I'm somebody who is an authority on these things because I don't even know if I believe them anymore mm. <laughs> you know I would actually purge myself of them by giving them to you and I'm free to think other things <laughs> <laughs> I mean we had that process as well when we were actually speaking in the conversations um, I remember you asking a question about something and and I would have this you know this very strong prejudgment of an idea of yes this is my answer and then as the conversation developed often we'd go back and be like oh actually no I've changed my view on that now as we've had a chance to grow through it so I feel like that was quite a nice process to capture actually this um yeah coming in with such a, a strong view and then being able to move past your own habitual thinking as well um yeah challenge your own uh conception of something and I understand that that didn't happen just through talking. It also happened through activities that you were thinking new things by doing mm. new things or other. Yeah. Yeah. The big um, focus of the whole project and intention was to be embodied, mm. to experience the space through the body to feel the space as we discovered you know what is it to feel the space as opposed to see the space or hear the space or touch the space if we close our eyes what do we how do we feel space that became a real i guess revelation for us for instance there was an exercise where elia and i were in this room in the library and i was guiding elia through kind of a meditation on space and she was asked to close her eyes and to imagine how close objects are to her body. And when she opened her eyes, she was stunned of how actually far things are, much further than she felt them. Mm. And so that was that <clears throat> experience of closing the boundary or the distance between things when we close our eyes and how the eyes keep us at a distance with the world. Mm. That's something that um, is of um, interest to me. We also in line with that explored what is it to listen to the space because sound brings us closer to the things because we are also sound makers at the same time as we receive sounds um i forgot your thought but oh, <laughs> yes <laughs> so your question not your thought yeah yeah thinking through boundaries was a 
key thing key theme that came up quite early for us like sensorial boundaries or spatial boundaries or thought boundaries or yeah perceptive boundaries mm. um and skin then skin is a boundary as well mm. yeah we thought of skin as being similar to the wall of the building mm. so what the, the the experience of closing the eyes was almost erasing the sensation of having skin Did and being change? contained within the body so body as a space is also a boundary mm. Yeah, there's the, the gingerbread man thought experiment where you're the gingerbread man, but also you're in a house made of the same stuff as your skin is made of. And what does that do to you? Yeah. Well, in this meditation, it was really um, interesting how Ira phrased the questions. It started with thinking about my body in this space in the library, but then rephrasing the question, what is my relationship to the whole building? What is my relationship to the suburb? to the city and then just expanding the boundaries of the space that I was relating to. And I found that it really changed my perception of the space I was in, but also it changed the question from being, what is my relationship to this physical space to what is my moral relationship or what is my ethical relationship within this space? And with, and it went from being, you know, not just the building, but then thinking about the community and thinking about um, uh, more global values and how front front yard fits within um, the art, arts context, for example. So, I mean, space is really malleable that way. It's, and I found that really interesting. <coughs> excuse me to explore was um, how space can so easily move from <coughs> how space can so easily move from being this physical entity into something that's quite imaginative and uh, emotional as well and this transition from space as a physical thing into place which is much more within us contained within us mm. i remember reading dark emu and having the spatial realization that australia is still a series of colonial outposts but until that point I had had the relationship that Australia was a cohesive continent or nation or country. Um, and, the, and then I expanded that, that actually a lot of Southeast Asia is still that paradigm, that it's a series of colonial outposts mm. rather than the nation states that um, have blanketed a series of borders. Yes, yeah. A friend from Italy was describing um, how there's not really a sense of nationalism in a way because from city to city or town to town, there's just so many cultural differences. Mm. And so, I mean, I'm just using them as an example. I'm, it's the same in Australia, but it's very, um, you know, I guess it's an easy way to view a group of people and it's helpful too to create these sort of uh, larger identities. But then, yes, remembering within that there there are these. Oh, you stated this nicely, actually. This like mosaic of perceptions um, in the book, yeah. But there's um, smaller geographies and smaller cultural centres within that as well. These small spaces make up this larger space. What do you think that what you're doing 
is doing. Or hope. Uh, hope, yes. Hope. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I was wanting to say. Um, I can't think it, but I can hope it. Um, with the book in particular, my hope is that when people engage with it, they will see and feel and observe and perceive spaces mm. afresh. Mm. Um, it will change the way they move through them, they sit in them, they interact with others in them. Um, it will encourage them to use the familiar spaces in new ways. Mm. That was something that we really explored. And that's why habit is in the word of the title, mm. is what happens when we develop this... Uh, continuous regular ways of operating in the space and how can we break that and it has a bigger political implication that question for me environmental implication as well of we need some radical changes but how do we get to them and there is a quote from Kierkegaard that guides me there he says how do we think what thought cannot yet think mm. how do we even get to that point of imagination because all imagination, as I feel, is based on some kind of embodied experience, unless we have this little grain of madness, which is amazing that people have that. And as I was saying to Ellie, I feel that lots of people who have moved us through histories have been a little mad. You know, they've been on the edge of madness, at least, and they've seen ahead, and we didn't take them seriously at the time. We were putting them in institutions and things like that. So how I'm not propagating that we go mad, but how do we challenge these habitual ways of operating? You know, why do we walk, when we walk through the space, why do we walk in the middle? Why don't we walk closer to the wall so we can feel the texture of the wall? What are these behaviors that have become uh, given and why don't we question them? Is, um, so that's what I'm hoping that people will maybe at least exercise those side of things of being listening better and also uh, another thing um, maybe using less vision and more of other senses because mm. it's they're so dormant they're so underused and vision is again as I'm saying very distancing medium even racially culturally sexually if we base our experience of each other on pure vision there are so many problems but if we listen if we close our eyes and sense if we what are the other senses? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I don't even you know. This smells one yeah. touch. There um, is the, mm. um, the wild phenomena that through viewing something, you can imagine the texture it would be on your tongue. Hmm. Mm, I'm doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help it. It's, you um, can imagine. Yeah. That, what, like, how interesting. What the, yeah. What the texture would be of a wooden. Um, electricity pole or whatever on your tongue if you were to but you don't mm, mm, mm. well children are very tactile that way you know they often explore the world with all parts with of everything. their body <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe that's part of um yeah this becoming familiar with the space around them what was what was one of your favorite uh not exercises activities like walkthroughs in the book that you loved doing because it kept delivering you this this uh, mm, 
direct experience rather than mediated experience? Uh, oh, I mean, I really enjoyed... At, this was on day, maybe day six, so towards the end of our residency, and by this time we'd become very familiar with the space at Front Yard, and mm-hmm. we're at this point where we really needed to... We didn't need to, but we were trying to find ways to challenge our uh, familiarity with the space. And um, we had developed habits already and rhythms around how we moved and where we sat at the table and even where we would choose to go and have lunch. It would be, you know, I went to the same spot a few days in a row. So um, at this point, it was interesting to do an exercise by uh, an artist, uh, Nadia Odlum, who wrote a exercise on experiencing space through um, following a set of instructions and drawing a line to represent your relationship to that object in the space. So we tried this exercise in four different spaces around front yard. And there were really simple instructions such as, oh, draw a line between you and uh, the other person drawing in this exercise, draw a really thick line between you and the highest point in the space, draw a dotted line following the movement of something moving in the space. So after so much conversation, it was just nice to kind of come back to these um, visual gestures and uh, looking around the space for things that perhaps we wouldn't have done at that point without the provocation. Um, But then following that, we realized how visually based this exercise was and we were questioning, oh, well, what have we now missed in our perception being so visually focused? And so the next exercise we did straight afterwards was to do a blind drawing of the space. So just closing our eyes, sitting in one of the rooms and drawing how we felt the space and using all of our other senses. And that was just such a beautiful experience because it was... um, Uh, I don't know, just like a a messy drawing, I suppose. I'm a visual artist, so I'm very aesthetic. But um, it was just such a nice way to kind of absorb this space, but also this place um, that we were sitting in. And a lot of it was tuning into our perception in that moment, but also a little bit of our memory as well. So remembering there was a dark corner over there and feeling that somewhere that we don't go, or remembering the the window behind us and feeling the kind of warmth of the sunshine coming through and era would always open the window as the first action of the day so there's sort of a special sp- spot that way mm. did you ever do anything with costume <laughs> no. no i just think about when i've had uh nails that are too long that i can't type for some example mm. um, and it's quite a look and I remember because my mum uh, works you know outdoors so the only time she ever has nails is when it's a special event and it's like a way to let everybody know that you're not working yeah yep. but of course then you go straight back to work and then the nails get broken yeah. and dirty and, mm. but just how it extends your I guess costume, even in lack of costume, because I imagine as you moved, you would warm up and then the first layer comes off. This is my experience in dance training. Mm. And then you suddenly are more... uh, 
What's the word? Less shielded is the word, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking when you were saying that how costume is this structure that we put in between our body, our skin, our flesh, and the space around us, and how... Well, it gives you persona as well. Mm. You know, having nails would mm. just make you feel different. Yeah. So it's interesting how this outside things like like our clothing make us feel certain ways. Mm. Um, they bring us to the world in a certain manner. But in this particular project, we were it was really quotidian in that way. We were just ourselves, you know. We would even take our shoes off and just be mm. in our domestic, which became a very domestic space. Um, mm. And I imagine it would be very different if this was in the tropics, because your shoes go off at the door, for example, mm. and it's thirty-eight degrees. Or exactly. Or even if it was cold and dark and we had to put the light on, because we never turned the light on. It was, you know, March and the sun was still there. And that was interesting to us to observe even these small, seemingly small things that we nowadays, you know, take for granted. I mean, light wasn't always there, but how that affects the uh, interaction and, and interpretation, I guess, experience of the space is is huge you know whether it rains and it's maybe a bit cloudy or it's sunny and all these things that we bring in that 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 we don't i mean that's the thing we don't pay attention to how affected we are and then we are kind of enslaved to things when we don't pay attention so one of the hopes again coming back to your question of this project is to become a bit more of a masters of the way that we behave so we can behave with a bit more consciousness mm. rather than just be puppets in someone's you know invisible hands and just do yes. things um and take take things um with deliberate as a deliberate action and do you mean specifically about how spaces are designed for our for us to move through them or for it to make us feel a certain way yeah, and how we use them, how we care for them. Lots of the things that came out is um, was also considering how we share spaces with others, how we leave them to others, and not just human others, but other sentient beings. So one of the exercises was imagining the space from perspective of an ant who has spent many many hours here maybe it has been here during the night which is the time we never experience in this space and what and how do we alter the life of this creature by just bringing our bodies here by bringing our smells or sounds we were considering how you know earth shaking movements they might bring into the life of this tiny creature and so I just again forgot your question and where I'm going with this. Um, but yeah, so it was uh, yeah, it, it was important to consider all that and how big impact we as humans have on each other and mm-hmm. on other beings, and then on on the Mother Earth and and um, yeah, again taking responsibility, I guess, of our actions mm-hmm. was important Mm. but at the same time as i say that being conscious of our actions we also explored what is it to be intuitive in the way that we move Mm. and not to lose that Mm. so it's not coming necessarily from our heads but also engaging with the heart and um wherever whatever that place is i mean intuition is maybe more physical more bodily based 
uh, than being in the head, because um, he- head is a problem, I think, mostly. I think about intuition as being acculturated, enculturated, whatever the one is. You, you learn your intuition. Oh, that's interesting. Is my position on it so far, and I'm thinking about it. And only, I only say that because I think that um, the intuitions that serve me in an environment that I'm familiar with completely fail me in environments that I'm not familiar with. Mm. Um, Do you think it's intuition there or maybe a habit? Uh, I, yes, I'm not drawing lines between them mm-hmm. because I think uh, an intuition is a thought that you can't think. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I hadn't said that before. But a habit is a form of training that you've gotten to in response to feedback from your environment, maybe. Mm. And so, therefore, also intuition. If your intuition is to... Your intuition should be adaptive, not maladaptive. Mm. One would hope, but then quite often they are maladaptive. But then I wonder about... Because I think we're quite often offered... A multiple choice of responses to a situation when you're talking about how do we choose how we're going to move rather than move the way that something has been designed for us to move mm-hmm. yeah because it's imposed by others but these invisible structures yeah. that or like uh, well-designed fire escape egress science like architectures architects are like mm-hmm. okay even someone who can't read the signs will be able to get out of the burning building because I designed these things to fall and flow and then the, the opening gets larger when it's at the edge of the building rather than middle of the building. So something like that. Mm. Yeah. Which is interesting because they're made for safety. So they have a function right. which is useful. Yeah. Of course, you know, we that's part of the development, I guess, of us as humans to, to find these structures that yeah, makes us feel safer. Um, so those structures are having their place and and function and usefulness Mm. but it's also what about everything else that is given you know that uh, a table dining table should be in the middle of the room rather than in a corner turned this way or Mm. that way or at a certain height exactly Mm. or the bed should be shaped in that shape rather than in a round Mm. you know egg-like shape (laughs) or the question why don't we have a sound absorbing materials in bathrooms you know like curtains and pillows and things that that was for moisture and mildew good point (laughs) (laughs) i say it as like operating rooms for example but there is a certain yeah Environments, there's cozy. Your environment is cozy, not because mm. of um, it doesn't taste cozy, but it feels and sounds and looks cozy. It mm. looks like it will feel and sound cozy, mm. but I don't think things can look cozy. One exercise we did was on psychological spaces, and so we went through five different uh, architectural shapes so mm. corners, ceilings. Uh, corridors, yes, uh, doors, windows, doors and windows, yeah. and just wrote down our like a list of associations that we had with each of these shapes. And I mean, it was really interesting. We agreed on a, on a lot, but we also had just different perceptions of how these shapes of architecture um, influence our movement and. Um, give us a sense of 
yeah, relating to the space. So um, for doors, for example, with the doors, I was thinking of very hard objects and being connected with walls. And I was surprised by Ira's response, which was much more um, tactile. Ira was had written in cupboard doors and things that you could pull mm. car doors and was so thinking beyond space in a way that I wasn't and it was just um I mean you know as humans construct the world mm. around them around ourselves mm. the the spaces that we inhabit are organized around people and so it's just interesting to comp- contemplate where these structures come from like the fire escape egress um in that there's always an intention behind construction and perhaps in acknowledging how we navigate these spaces gives us an opportunity to challenge that habit or that intuitive response within those spaces yeah and then there's also culture right yes about sitting up to the dinner table to have dinner for example and that you could let go of that pretty easily well generations have let go of it because eating in front of the tv yeah but now that you bring that up it's not just called culture it's um, biology i guess because there is a reason why we sit at a table because digestion is better if you eat in a particular i think it's like ayurveda basically it's okay. it's a health system as well so i think when we watch when we eat in front of tv mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it correlates with a lot of obesity issues and and bad um, metabolism so it's interesting like to think where does actually those where do those things that are part of culture also come from where do how to drive throughs fit into this then (laughs) (laughs) speed culture of speed i don't have time to actually I mean, Imagine again, in Ayurvedic medicine, yeah. you uh, each uh, bite you take, ideally you would chew for 42 bites before uh-huh. you swallow because uh-huh. it actually is seen as like the healthiest way to um, for metabolism to work. And I'm not a scientist or a doctor. I don't know if that's actually the case, but certainly it seems to me it's a bit sad that we live in a culture where we don't have time to actually have a meal in peace and we have to do it while we are also driving or observing something else because it i mean food is nourishment it's you know like Mm. it should be maybe treated as well like that but you know it's okay it's it is the time we live in so we just adapt to it that's also healthy i guess to be adaptable and malleable in that way Mm. what do you what did you come up with any thoughts about choreography not really we didn't touch on that did we no i wasn't yeah i personally wasn't thinking of that it wasn't in that sense coming in it as a dancer i guess when i if i'm mentioning that i'm a dancer in this context it's more to it's more for myself this awareness that i um, that was brought to me in recent years of how if anything dance has really taught me to be in space very consciously because you know, dance is about interaction with the space and I have observed how people who are not trained in dance or have not had experience of dancing in that way they maybe are not as 
ready to pay attention to the fact that there is a corner just, you know, a few, you know, uh, steps behind me or there is another body next to my right shoulder or um, I might bump into something in the space if I'm not careful. So this spatial awareness is something that we are trained to to be conscious of as dancers. And so, yeah, and that's what this whole uh, experience was about, is developing spatial awareness and awareness of the inner space as well in that because what came very early in discussion was to think about the body as the space and it seemed to me that it's something that is brought up in dance circles that body is the space as well that body is itself a structure with particular shape and size um yeah Mm. this is perhaps not choreography but we did an exercise which was a set of intentional moves where the instruction was to move through an intuitive pathway through the space. This is the second time moving through the pathway, but to challenge the choice Mm. of movement. So challenging, um, if I was to usually go left, for example, choosing to go right. And so making choices at certain points along the pathway and, then afterwards noting that down where those choices were made. And then also it was interesting to observe what were the parameters to make those choices as well. Um, was it just against habit? Was it something to do with the shape of the space in that moment? Was it just an intuitive feeling? Um, so, yeah. and, and those ones were based on Brecht. Mm. So he's, um, I've read, I think it's Meg Manford who writes about his exercises and I think she says that he said that we as human beings have an ability to interrupt habit by making choices and as I'm sure most of the people know you know his whole socio-political thing was how to challenge habits Mm. and um, act in opposition to, to these political structures or social structures so that was that exercise exercise wanted to 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 use this kind of thinking and then when you speak about choreography if anything i think we were exploring intuition and and um uh what's the name um improvised dancing mm-hmm. improvised mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. so that choreography actually would probably not be something that it would probably be something we want to avoid and we mm-hmm. were questioning how do we even improvise because if body is the structure and if we are conditioned to move in certain ways not just by culture but by our own structure of our body that can move in only certain ways you know how far can you push that Mm. and i've tried lots of improvisation and i always come to this point after a while i'm just repeating my usual movement you know i'm improvising but not really Mm. you know and how can i escape that can i Maybe not. Maybe there is no such a thing as improvisation. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. But I also think probably jazz musicians, to tell me if I'm wrong, if you know them personally, are probably also not worried if what they play sounds like jazz music when they're improvising. Mm. There's, a, there's a reason that there's form and that there's form so that we can be together in some kind of... And your body will do what your body will do which is what you said a, a meeting of its structure and its inputs 
but also how jacked up you are on coffee and how exhausted you are from staying up late to get back your own personal time from it being stolen by other <laughs> obligations <laughs> and all of the all of those um, hijackings of what otherwise might be uh, an internal impulse or rhythm but, but that's the thing it's it's uh, just being aware of that yeah. you know because so what you're saying there you're just being aware okay I'm moving this way because I had three coffees in the morning <laughs> and and then you also know before you have those before you make the choice to have those three coffees that it will have that effect on you so it's basically that's it it's just being conscious of the effect of your actions not to say that you shouldn't do them but it's it's useful to know mm. you know why am i why is my head buzzing this morning it's or, or why do i feel faint because you know maybe i didn't have a breakfast or something happened that stressed me yesterday stress is baseline yeah. normalcy currently yeah. i would say mm. Mm. What do you think about interfaces? So, because you're dealing with space as the interface and body as the interface, but then also this book, you're, the bodies that are reading this book are meeting the interface of a book. But I imagine you wrote it using other interfaces, and not just of paper, but you know, designed it using QWERTY keyboards and screens and all of those effects. Mm. Yes, well... We definitely, in our editing process, moved between both on screen so mm. and then printing out. We printed out, I would say, half of our editing copies to get that sense of the physical right. the experience yeah. of reading a book. And, um, I mean, it changed the experience completely when you can hold it in your hands and when you can take it with you into another room. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. Um, and when we were first thinking about oh how would we put this book together we had envisaged that um it would be just a single copy that would exist within front yard within this library and so the experience would be to read the book within the space itself um and that's what the initial idea was but um yes we feel that there's a lot of value in just being able to take the book into anyone's own space and uh, these are exercises that can be um, are offered to be practiced in anyone's space and um, yeah being a tangible object it can be taken anywhere so mm. and everyone will have a different uh, reading of the book just depending on where they are which is very special and interesting I think yeah, and having some friends and family who are not here in Sydney, <laughs> I think that's where that idea of actually printing extra copies started because I wanted to send it to my parents <laughs> or, you know, give it to some friends, offer it to some friends who will never come to Sydney. So it was important to have a few more copies. Mm. Did you feel that like you wanted to put any uh, so the book is a tangible object you can touch and is something that you can move through visually uh, and then you can enact the things physically and now I'm wondering about listening if there were listening activities or if there was some kind of composition that you imagined while you were doing it that never made it into the book but it was guiding or 
Well, I think at the beginning we were considering having a sound installation, which was a recording of our conversations. So when we started this project, we weren't planning to make the book. Yes, okay. That was an accident, in a way. <laughs> we Big accident. We were, if anything, thinking maybe there will be a tiny little booklet of a few pages. Yeah. And then we will have exhibition, and part of exhibition might be sound installation, which is our conversations manipulated maybe in some way. And I, for the last many years, have this weird con uh, compulsion to record audio record things. Okay. So whenever I do a project, and it's often with another artist, I ask whether we, we can just record a whole thing. So we were recording everything that we were talking about the the zoom recorder was on for mm. eight hours a day or six or six hours or whatever so we had heaps of material and then we started listening through that maybe thinking about this exhibition and we realized that maybe there is a material there for a transcription to actually have a form of a book mm. and it didn't seem uh, the, the quality of recording actually wasn't great as well, so it didn't give itself to anything more than being in a in a cupboard. Um, but yeah, the book accidentally, I guess, came. Yeah, in that way. Mm. And there's always going to be something that's lost when it's translated from voice into text as well, and um, how we speak and how we related to each other in a moment and. I think we tried to spend a lot of time to convey it as much as possible, the kind of liveness of the conversation through the book. So I do hope that that's still there for readers when they go through. Um, yeah, but perhaps that brings us back around to language again and this idea of concreteness. But. Yeah, it was also an interesting archive. Um, yeah, which maybe this compulsion I have to record voices is this interest in archiving. And even if it was just for two of us, something that we could come back to. And also what I find is if if we are just having a conversation, it's not recorded somehow, I struggle to um, maintain the focus because if you say something super interesting and I'm just wanting to retain it in my head and I can't continue thinking my own thoughts yeah. unless I write it down quickly, but having a recorder there just frees me from feeling that I will lose some information if, uh, if I keep talking. Mm. Do you feel compelled to do any of the movements now in this space? Not now, now, like for the audience, but now that you're back in this space, or do you feel like that's something that's happened? It's not something you need to repeat. I think sitting still in different spaces would be nice to experience again mm. and just sensing how the space feels now and after knowing what I know or have discovered through conversations um, about the space and how that's affected my perception and my awareness of what to listen and look for and that would be interesting to do again I'd like to do that
definitely find that I want to touch things more now. It's funny because we live in a time and if anything, don't touch anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was at the gallery the other day and um, I was so aware of the security guards watching me because I was the only person in the space. And so there's that instant connection you have with another person of that, that feeling of being watched as well. And, um, but then I think it was just being released from lockdown. It was this real sense of wanting to get up close to works of art and touch things. And, you know, you're not allowed to, which, but you can't even get that close to get that sense on your tongue maybe of <laughs> their texture <laughs> yeah just the frame I won't, I won't lick the painting I just want to lick the frame <laughs> mm. Mm. but if you go to some other say um, houses of worship or uh, lookouts or whatever there's often a statue there that's been touched by everybody who's trekked there yeah, I think it's the belief that this object is charged by something. <laughs> and so if you touch it, that energy will go into your body, um, yeah, which is actually one, something that we spoke about yeah. in the book was that uh, spaces are charged with ah. past energies. Yeah. And um, you're just questioning that moment when you enter space and you just feel a straightaway connection with it. It's like when you feel straightaway, straightaway connection with a certain person, which is what I felt with Elia when... In that, not consciously, but obviously there was something, you know, mm. that we interacted in a, in a healthy way with each other, just, you know, and I don't know how to explain those things because with some people you just straight away and it's nothing wrong or, or bad about them, but you just, the energy doesn't flow well, the conversation's not there. And then with other people, it just feels, you know, very instant, that connection mm. and I certainly feel that with spaces as well. Mm -hmm. Some places just feel comfortable mm -hmm. and the others just don't and then yeah the question is okay maybe that's not something metaphysical maybe it's just the light is is right and the shape of the space feels good and um the smells are you know in place and everything um but maybe there is something more as well so and there's yeah. also familiarity with the ceremony mm -hmm. the like places that you go and eat in Australia have a door and you enter through the door but places that you go and eat in KL Malaysia it, there's just no wall so you mm. can enter from any direction and then what do you do, you, mm. do you, like if you don't know if, you, if you're the sort of person that enters through a door and then gets noticed visually and then gets directed somewhere and you're waiting for that ceremony to unfold um, then it's very uncomfortable when those cues aren't there, I would say. Mm -hmm. But even if there are places with doors, do you feel that in all of those places with doors, whichever, whichever place you enter, the feeling is the same? No, no, no. But I know that the door is the place to enter. Mm -hmm. That's all. The, the ritual is clear. The, yes. My, the interface is familiar. Mm -hmm. A question we kept coming back to was whether spaces, whether we affect spaces or whether spaces affect us, and particularly when we enter them. So in that moment, like entering this restaurant without doors, is that the space affecting you? Or are you affecting the space with um, what you're bringing to it? 
your assumptions, I your guess, assumptions. that you bring into an interaction. Mm. We shape our environment and then it shapes us. Is that the... Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I liked the moment during... The moment. <laughs> I enjoyed the silver lining of seeing memes where priests were baptizing children with water pistols because they couldn't um, handle them and dunk them in the water. But the water still <laughs> needed to get over to the child. Uh, mm. I think that's part of it. Like, we probably won't maintain that. But imagine if that becomes the way that you christen somebody with a water pistol. I th that's awesome. Because <laughs> you can get Spider-Man inspired water pistols that strap to your arm and then you flex your wrist back and then the water shoots out like a spider web um i only know this because they're small children <laughs> and imagine if that's how the, the priest is christening the, the kids they just line them up and you <laughs> so was this developed because of covid yeah, yeah. so that's right. the thing how the culture develops there is always something and then you look back in history oh okay that's why they're sitting in this way because something happened there was some pandemic at a time and so that's how this thing that will maybe in 20 years time be just given you know yes. water pistols and christening <laughs> there is an explanation for everything that we have invented is yeah. some kind of functionality mm. that's an amazing idea <laughs> <laughs> an interruption to convention mm. becomes something new mm. and yeah how the creativity develops when you're confronted with this obstacle Yes. You know, which was a pandemic. So how do we continue the same ritual? Because we have to, of course, we can't stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how do we just yeah. make it possible? And then in this um, challenging situation, you your creativity just expands. Yes. Yes. Mm. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you wanted to think out loud about? doesn't even have to be things that are finished. It could be things that are in the works. It could be an epiphany that you had during it. I mean, epiphanies are some of my favourite things, so I'll take those at any, <laughs> at any time. <laughs> it sounds very similar to parkour. Like you wrote a book about how to be in space in a way that was not the way that you would otherwise be in space. And it leads you through that. It sounds like a parkour workshop. We didn't write it. We spoke it. And then it got written. Or it transcribed. Got transcribed. Yeah, partly yeah, yeah. by a machine. Yeah, nice. Mm. Okay, that's cool. Mm. Which was an interesting, actually, experience of making something that is a book but through conversation yeah. and spoken words and how the thought process is so much different than when, when you're engaged with someone and things that come out of you that would probably never come if you actually sat alone no. at a desk no. and contemplated these subjects and the effort that that would take it was an effort to transcribe and put it together later mm. but the process of actually expressing it was so easy because mm. it was this it was being in conversation with another human being who shares interests with whom you feel like you can have um, a nice conversation 
listening process with. And so it was just, um, I don't know how I would write a book. No. Otherwise, it's too hard. It's such a good definition to make, though. I wonder if in academia it should be introduced a bit more. You know, why don't we write in conversation? Why does it have to be this lonely process of solitary genius reading <laughs> lots of books and putting things on paper when yeah. we, could ma- we could make it so much easier on ourselves? I imagine they feel that the papers are the things that are in conversation not the people mm-hmm. and that, so there's a, a way to get enough distance of the idea from the individual so that the idea can be critiqued yeah that's what I that's how I understand science for example mm. and somehow it seems less serious when you take a book and there is a conversation as a format in it mm. uh, that's just an interview that's not a serious form if we actually wrote a book or, you know, each wrote a chapter, mm. it would be like, oh, this is like an academic material. But if it's in a form of conversation, it seems something else. Yeah. But then on the other hand, for the reader, I wonder, that's that thing that I'm curious, what will be the experience of absorbing this content for the reader? Because it's obviously a bit easier to absorb when you are reading a conversation. It feels like a re-performance to read a conversation uh, because reading means that I am forming those words in my own head with my own internal voice. Um, and so they, it's in that moment I am practicing having that thought. Yeah. That's why reading is so powerful, I think. Mm. And so reading, reading a text that somebody else has um, sat alone to write feels like reading their thoughts, whereas reading a conversation feels like I'm restaging that conversation and I'm just playing both parts. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then when I get up and go through the motions that have been set up as well for the activity, then it feels like the extension of the re-performance. And if you knew the writers, would it be the same? Or if you were reading a book that two of your friends spoke, mm. would you then have more of an experience of being, of hearing their voices and being actually in their heads? Mm. Yeah, maybe. I th- yes, because I'm thinking now about comic strips where there is conversation, but written by one person, but written as a conversation. And then I'm thinking about ads where it's one person talking to another person on the radio or on the television. And I hate those and I hate listening to those, but I'm very happy to read a conversation that's been entirely fabricated from one author, for example, in a comic strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I th- and I think most, probably most of the reading that a lot of us do each day is conversational text because it's in messages and emails mm-hmm. mm. thinking of improvisation again and I mean conversation is a form of improvising mm. but before the improvising there's so much preparation whether it's intentional or not but mm. a kind of practice I mean having a conversation 
all the conversations that we've had leading up to, you know, recording this particular time. Um, I'm thinking about uh, at jazz school, I've heard from friends, you know, they would often transcribe the improvisations of, you know, the great jazz players, but then they would learn how to play that improvisation. So there's a sense of like bringing something alive again, um, but I guess through their own uh, approach, which is interesting. So maybe there's a parallel between that and, um, yeah, reading an improvisation or reading a conversation that is improvised. You kind of insert yourself into that performance. Mm. Yeah, I also think if we approached it in writing it individually as chapters, it would be much less personal. Mm. I mean, that's something we are taught in at the university. Don't put your your personal opinion in, and if you do, back it up really well with somebody else's opinion. But it seems to me that we are not encouraged to actually have you know our I inside of the text. Mm. I think this, or I feel this, or I believe this. So I think that that removal would be uh, intensified. And what was happening in in this experience was that the book is actually quite private in many ways because we do end up sharing with each other the memories of places and spaces that had significance in our lives. And actually, Elia and I didn't really know each other well before this project. Mm. So we got to know each other (laughs) through this book. And the book is actually uh, a big brother in that sense, (laughs) in a way, (laughs) because you can trace this um, uh, getting to know each other of two people through these eight days as well mm. is maybe present in it. I don't know how obvious it is, but certainly from the first day we sat together where it was still like, well, kind of saw you a few times in my life. but And so, and then on day five, it was, you know, talking very intimately about mm. our upbringing. Mm. Um, so f- even for us, it's, it's a nice record of that experience of developing friendship or relationship, yeah. And my one of my hopes for the book is um, offering a sense of vulnerability at points. Maybe it'll be an opportunity for readers to be vulnerable in their own spaces in a way as well. Open up to memories or their awareness of the space in a way that they haven't uh, maybe had an opportunity to before or hadn't thought to before. Um so, yes, I feel like I've been brave to be vulnerable at moments when I've seen someone else offer that to me as well. Mm. So, yeah, it was nice to have this experience together <laughs> that way. Yeah. The silence is also an achievement of that, right? I love that about your show. I've noticed that you do that quite a bit. It's it's brave, yeah. Do you do you find that you have different experiences with different people when that happens? That maybe some people panic when you offer silence? 
I think some people feel listened to when you repeat the last few words that they've just said and some people feel listened to when you uh, hold the space until they can form their thought into words and doing the wrong one for the wrong person would be wrong <laughs> uh, and so some people uh, and especially say if you're on a, a phone call or whatever they'll ask if you're still there and then my my standard response at the moment is no this I, this is, that's the sound of me listening which is so different when we are in the space together because then it's obvious when there is no this barrier between us like yeah. a phone call yes well my my very favorite when i started thinking about these things i was at a table and of course it's 360 degrees so people in all different directions and a colleague of mine adelina larson she was with me but then had to turn to give her attention to somebody away from me and so put a hand on me because her eyes were being taken away from me yeah and I think that 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 is why I always love um, together but when I listen a couple of your episodes in that moment when you allow for silence you are allowing for the people for the person to expand on the thought rather than kind of chopping it and there is always it's interesting how there is always more that this person finds to say about something if you allow for that space and time so I think in some ways the most wonderful things come out just from that little moment that you allow for that silence to take place it is something I noticed for Q&A's after shows in Australia people are really awkward in Finland people just sit there while the artist thinks and then the audience will be thinking and the artist will be thinking and then someone will say something and it's very well it's it's very considered but nobody's like oh nothing's happening okay time to go it's not like that that's really wonderful mm. i mean a question we were pondering was um is there such thing as empty space yes and of course there's the parallel to is there such thing as silence as well and um of course there isn't yeah i think the empty space the feeling of empty space is when nobody's listening not even yourself, not even an, another creature who's in living and inhabiting. I think that gives the feeling of emptiness. I think there are a lot of noisy, empty spaces. Mm. So it's more psychological space that you're talking about? I, yeah, I'm trapped in a human condition. <laughs> <laughs> it's a chronic one for me. <laughs> and it's associated with panic, certain state of panic, then I assume that sensation of being completely alone I think it's also about literacy to your environment if if I am somewhere with somebody who's more literate in that environment than I they can see things that I can't see and that could be a library or it could be a mechanics tool shed or it could be uh, a bushwalk mm. the of course the aloneness and the emptiness is not possible but you can feel it if you can't if you're not literate uh, and then then you put in the effort I guess and the work to try and become literate 
but can you then experience that empty space in a space that's filled with objects? Maybe if they don't mean anything to you. Mm. Like mm. You, you can starve to death if you don't know how to cook, even if your food's in the fridge. So that's where you affect the space more than the space <laughs> affects you. <laughs> I guess. I just know um, I choreographed for a film and some people on the film also worked with recent immigrant communities and they would be um, bussed to a house that they were going to live in and then set up with groceries but they were often entire groups of men and the men were not taught to cook and so they didn't cook either out of pride or out of acculturation or out of lack of ability and then they would be not eating and so it wasn't enough to give the things there was other and so the to them the house was empty of food but that's only to the point of when you start starving, yeah. when your existentialism <laughs> is at stake, you probably learn how you to cook. Learn how to learn. Hopefully, but I don't know. I don't like. I think people do crazy things for their belief systems. Oh yeah, if the religion is involved, then yes. Like I definitely do crazy things just so that I can be at a higher than average chance of having an epiphany every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this reminds me of what we spoke about in terms of blank wall. Like, would you, if you came to the point with this empty space that you're yeah. perceiving because you don't know how to fill it or yeah. how to use the objects, and you come to the point of total nothingness, yes. and, and nothingness is uh, the risk of losing yourself, of erasure? Erasure, mm. yeah. yeah. yeah maybe you would start actually learning how to make use of space and start filling it with that content that is necessary for survival in a way. Yeah. My understanding is that most of our activity is self-soothing, self-medicating, all art, all culture, all uh, science, all technology, <laughs> all love, just a way to um, survive, <laughs> exist. Yeah. Uh, Spend but, time. Yeah. Well, and then they, yeah. it crystallizes in beautiful constructs of relation, like a book called In Praise of Shadows. Mm -hmm. It's a very small booklet uh, that you can read in half an hour, but it, it tracks uh, Japanese approaches to shadow being decorative. Mm -hmm. And then now, before I knew that, I didn't see shadows as decorative. Now I have been exposed to that. And now I understand a blank wall has gradients and it is dynamic. And if the awning has been considered, then the shadow has been considered. Mm. But if it hasn't, then it hasn't. And if I am literate, I can consider it. But if I am not, then I can't, no matter how much effort has been put into it. Mm. Mm. Yes, we tried to... Um capture a sense of time and space and through light and shadow with an exercise where we took a photo of the same space or same part of a room every hour and then just looking at how the light changes over the time because there are these things that happen around us that was that just moves so slowly compared to how our own like inner time um we can't perceive them such as the sh shadow moving across the room and it's um 
it's beautiful to look at the series of photos afterwards and just see this this constant movement this change of shape and that it's always happening and moving around us but we um i mean i guess in that case it's just it's impossible to be literate in that way because of time Time it's just so imperceptible yeah yeah. Yeah. human time fern time Mm. different times very different times (laughs) yeah There's, yeah, and even, say, the disintegration loops, series of tapes that are on loop in an old tape machine, but they uh, degrade every time they're played and so it changes over the course of the track. Yes. And you can easily scrub through it because it's now a digitised file. But if it wasn't, if the interface did not allow that... Yeah. That's lovely, though, because it's the object taking on a life of its own. And, I mean, thinking about, to you know, everyone wanting to touch the monument and the park or something, yeah. you know, it's just it's um, that object takes on its own history and life. And then as you touch the object, you're aware of everyone else who has also had a relationship with it as well. And so it's, um, I mean, same with spaces and thinking about the histories of a space and... I mean, it's such an issue in Sydney at the moment with development because um, I often feel that with developers, there's this sense of like, oh, well, this is an empty space and it has no history. There's no connection to anyone else. It's just a piece of land for sale. And um, just the lack of acknowledging place is really problematic. And um, it's but it's just an easy fact to ignore um, that this space, this place has been here and it's been um, it's, it's got a life of its own and it means something to someone else yes yeah. and that's the thing yeah, it coming. means multiple different things to, to multiple different people yeah. yeah yes of course we're just coming back to that question of care of yes. what was here yes. before us and it's a I mean obviously a question that connects back to indigenous knowledge is what was on, on, on this land before yes. this library yes. before this building mm. and what is our role mm. in caring for this space and we, one thing that we were also touching on is this Western concept of ownership of, of space rather than custodianship of the space is such a different approach mm. to what we inhabit, a problematic approach. Mm. Like forgetting about those lineages of everything that's come before us and everything that will come after as well. So in what state are we leaving this planet to the next generations? And it, it starts with the space because we were thinking, how are we... In what state are we leaving the room mm. of our residency for the next week's resident? So it's a micro element of that bigger picture of leaving the planet for the generations to come. And it can start with really small things too, like um, the exercise class I go to every week. You know, we wipe down the mats and make sure they're clean for the next people to come in and... Um, a friend of mine who bought the book and runs this exercise class 
um, at the beginning of one of her classes, she um, asked us to think about the person who is in the room just before touching the equipment and mm. this, yeah, just this idea of passing objects between different people that you haven't seen. And it's, yeah, just, um, I guess, that idea of transgressing boundaries that way as well through objects and thinking about who was here just before and who you're leaving it to. I think that about people who prefer to not wear shoes and then I completely understand when it's somewhere that would be nice to not wear shoes. But then when I see it in King Street in Newtown, I can't understand. <laughs> uh, but then I wonder if nobody was wearing shoes, then it would become a nice place to not wear shoes, for mm. example. Mm. Because uh, we would be exposed to what it's like. It would be less dirty as well if nobody was wearing shoes. Because yeah. at the moment, if you're not, if you're the only one who is not, then all the dirt from other people's shoes is <laughs> gonna end up on your feet. Um, I do dare to do it sometimes when I go into the Sydney Park. So I walk oh, yeah. in my shoes there, and then I just on the uh, or on, on the, the concrete path, as yeah. well. It doesn't feel great. It's not. I mean, it's nowhere near to walking on a beach or yeah. in on the grass. But I guess sometimes physically, I feel um, I need that contact with the ground and um, just for certain body pains that I'm feeling. Just wondering if I don't wear shoes for the moment and yes. maybe you know my hips and back and all that will feel a bit better. Um, yeah, but I went to this uh, wonderful uh, meditation, actually, um, um, walking meditation in Carlo Pools, which is close to Hidcott Station. And we walked through the bushland, which from danger perspective, I would be very hesitant to take my shoes off in a, in a bushland. And also it's, you know, a mm. bit um, uneven terrain. But this walking meditation encouraged us to take our shoes off. And I, at the beginning didn't want to but then slowly I started feeling a bit more safe and it was just so wonderful because you also walk slower mm. you have to walk slower mm. we were encouraged to walk very slow and in silence but you can't walk fast if you're mm. barefoot and you have to actually keep an eye for the those big ants the, the red ants so you're actually make you know shoes um there is a dancer, sorry, I'm jumping from toe to toe, but there is this dancer who teaches uh, pagan dances, and he told me that the downfall, the downfall of human society is invention of shoes. Wow. Wow. It's powerful to mm. think about this separation that we have created between our bodies and the terrain that we traverse. But shoes have also allowed us to push the boundaries of how far we can move as well. I think the um, contrast between having shoes on and then taking them off as well is a very important moment 
know, it's this need for, because it creates that sense of freedom, right? Like you take off your shoes and you feel comfortable. Like if you come home and you take off your shoes, it's like, oh, I can relax. And, you know, often we have that need when we go to the beach, it's like, oh, I take off my shoes and walk in the sand. It's that point of, um, that point of contrast is the moment you can relax into the moment and um, become something else, become something you know, feel something different than what you would in your normal day. And also, if I'm correct, I think in the cultures where they do encourage you to take the shoes off when you walk into the house, I think it's also so you don't bring the outside into the inside in both really physical way of not bringing the dirt, but also maybe some kind of emotional way mm. you know when you're entering this other space just leave everything that you mm. come from behind mm-hmm. and enter the space I'm hoping that uh, the with all of these different cultures living together in Australia that some of the things that we learn from each other is that everybody ends up taking their shoes off when they enter the house. That becomes an Australian tradition. That's what I'm hoping. And I also hope that the other thing that becomes an Australian tradition is when you see people in public just um, doing something because it feels nice on their body, rocking their arms back and forward or just like bending and flexing through their toes. And usually it's only the the people that get together for Tai Chi in the park or something like that, that feel like through their upbringing or through the culture or through the community around them, that that's something that's okay to do. Um, but it is a very radical act. It seems like if you're waiting at the lights and you just like stretch your arms around and have a, that seems pretty radical. Unfortunately. Do you think there's something in there about being comfortable to take up space? To physically take no, up I space think as there's well. There's plenty of dudes in Utes in Australia that are comfortable to take up space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I think there's. It's about visibility. You want to. We're often shy to be visible, so you just want to be in your little cocoon, which is, you know, arms beside your body. Um, and if you stretch, you bring attention to yourself yes. I guess the thing there is this attention to yourself. so you need the entire society to agree that that is not out of the ordinary and then it won't bring attention mm. and then you're allowed to do it <laughs> 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 I don't know when or how we get to that point but I do remember like there's there's a down near the International Convention Centre. There's a strip there where dancers get together to oh, yes, freestyle with the mirrors. Yeah, and in that space, they're not bringing attention to themselves. They're doing it for themselves. But if they went and did that in another space, it would be seen as trying to bring attention to themselves. Mm. Yeah, and that is a shame. I wonder if people who practice Tai Chi in a park mm. would be able to would feel comfortable doing that, say, in the middle of a city plaza, for example. Probably in some places. It's the only mm. space that's available, and so that's where it happens. Mm. I did see that in Manila. There was a like um, a whole group dance, not battle, just like jam, going down in the middle of a roundabout. Because that great. was a space. I mean, it was a town square-sized roundabout. 
Yeah. But if that's the space you got, if that's where you can live, that's where you. And that, sorry, was that a performance? No. No, it was, it was like the Tai Chi, like come and join ah. doing this dancing thing if you want to join. And so there was someone out the front leading and then everyone followed along. Mm. And then some people watch. I think the distinction is it's not so out of the ordinary. Nobody's filming. But if that happened here, people would film. Or yeah. in the States or in the UK, like all these places that we get our culture beamed in from. Yeah. I think performance art helped with that a bit because of all the crazy things that we experience through performance art, nothing seems as crazy anymore. <laughs> and sometimes you wonder when you see something like that, oh, must be some performance, must be some crazy artist doing something. So oh, yeah. you, so it can pass, you know, it can probably pass a bit more than um, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, yeah. before 60s, I guess, when those kind of things started happening. Uh. And with TikTok as well, there's always a performance happening everywhere you go, someone's like, enacting something oh, for the for the gram yeah for the lens yeah mm. you're saying what are they doing they're dancing or they're um walking in nice clothes <laughs> 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 um but just in any location i saw a woman doing it the other day and there was a car coming and she was standing in the middle of a road and looked really dangerous but um you know it wasn't out of the ordinary at all <laughs> she seemed completely comfortable is what i mean to say yeah, you know yeah, in that yeah. space she was um yeah yeah and what would we, what would change for you matt mm -hmm. if if that became possible what is restricted in other words for you now without that being possible uh i'm Wow, what well, I think a lot would change, um, but one of the th I say flashback to when I would do breaking performances with um, some friends in a mall in Darwin, and it was a show. Um, but if we wanted to train, we couldn't go to the mall to train because then it's a show, mm -hmm. and so we were luckily we had access to a, a studio. Um, I think it's what it, not what it would do from then on, but what would have had to change to arrive at that point. So to arrive at a point where it's not out of the ordinary for somebody to be experiencing their own physical sensations, for example. Uh, all the things that would have had to change to get to that point. That's what that's I think would be the exciting things because it would mean that um, breathing has been normalized again. Mm. Breathing. Breathing. Like that. It, that if you uh, if you stop and breathe, that you're not a weirdo. <laughs> it's, it, it would be nice if society normalized breathing. <laughs> Making sound to breathe as well. Yeah, it's yeah, just maybe just enough. I do think that sometimes. People sneeze far louder than they need to. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, oh, dude, we're sharing this space. So that, yeah, it's hard to know, right? It's hard to know because we've got mm -hmm. this idea of like how loud can you be so that you're being considerate. Mm -hmm. And when you're louder than that, you're not being considerate. And then that changes the context. I think a motorbike needs to be ridiculously loud on a highway 
so that it is visible through its sound mm-hmm. and riders don't get knocked off. But when they're just going down Marrickville Road, it's still just as loud. Yeah. But the latest Mustang cars, they have a button, like a neighbourhood considerate button that, like, the engine becomes quieter oh, and you just go I down the street and you that. park. And then you leave your neighbourhood cul-de-sac or whatever and then you're on the highway and then you press the power button and then it goes, boom! <laughs> and then everyone looks at you and then you feel the power. So that's pretty wild tech. Like, we're yes. not far away from it. Yeah. And with electric vehicles, I'm sure you'll be able to download <laughs> an app and on. then just choose your sound. <laughs> but when we invent these things where a machine yeah. is an interface for us making these decisions, do we lose ability to actually reason for ourselves? Like when we had a car without those buttons to press, yeah, it yeah. was us who needed to yeah. have a, a, a common sense of kindness, I guess, of yeah. how loud to be. And these interfaces kind of allow us to take a seat back and just, oh, it's just a button. Somebody else is like, this robot is making these decisions on my behalf. Um, I think the key word is a common sense of kindness. And I don't know how common it is for us to be sensitive enough to be kind. Mm. And I don't think um, the interfaces or the robots are the downfall. Mm. I think it's how do you have cohesion within diversity? How do you have common within multiplicity? Mm. Um, how do you have kindness within uh, multicultural difference? Because I have been to lunch at places and I'm by myself, like a single dude by himself, so I just get sat at a table with somebody else who's there for lunch. It's a noodle place or whatever. And I am offended to the point of having to put my headphones on noise cancelling because of the slurping that my table mate, who I don't know but I've been sat with um, because of their noises, but it's not offensive to them. It's very offensive to me. (laughs) But then I know that it's only offensive to me because of how I've been raised, like all the accidents Mm -hmm. of who told me how to eat. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's offensive to him that I'm not slurping. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's this like we need to also there I just don't think that we get to a point where our actions are speaking. I know that our actions speak louder than our words, but also that like the default that oh this person isn't an asshole, we just have different ideas. That would be a nice default to be operating on most of the time. Mm-hmm. But then when we invent these systems, yeah. the question is whose parameters are we using? Yes. It's always, definitely always the question. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes they're controls and sometimes they um, can be friendly reminders as well to be considerate. Like, well, I'm just thinking like with the mask wearing with COVID, you know, it was, um, or with uh, going out somewhere and having tables at a restaurant spaced a certain distance, uh, 1.5 metres apart, um, you know, these kind of visual reminders are reminders to be considerate of other people in the mm. space that you're sharing it with. And I just don't know if we've ever experienced something so large scale to be considerate of other people's spaces before. It's, um, I mean, will that awareness stay with us? I wonder. That'll be really interesting to track. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, of course, it's a, it's a control that's set for us that we all followed. Um, and sometimes it's you can get a sense from someone else that, you know, they're just out to protect themselves and that's fine. But I feel like there was a lot of experiences I had where I feel like we were aware of each other in a way that was really positive as well. It was um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. What am I trying to say? Like controls can be both beneficial and... Um, yes, containing in a way that is not healthy. Yeah. yeah, I enjoy that there seems to be a... I enjoy because I've been acculturated to prefer this, that um, spitting on the public street is frowned upon. Um, in a way that in other places I've been to, it is not a problem. Um, but that's... You know, that's just an accident of where I was born and who I was born to, and mm. like my preference on that. So I don't know, but I would like that um, that people default to checking in with themselves about how they're feeling, what they're feeling, rather than just going through with their feelings. That'd be nice. Hmm. Yeah. That's that awareness. That's the thing. Right. Yeah. Mm, taking time. Yeah. Giving also giving time, right? Giving right of way, taking right of way. Well there's yeah, I like the idea that you can't take right of way, you can only give it. Mm. If, something like that. Yeah, we, in the book we um in the book or in conversation we spoke about driving, driving behaviours and um how it's just within these really structured parameters of the roads and the traffic lights, there's still so much room to negotiate with your fellow drivers and mm. how there's, um, you know, always the driver who won't let you in when you're trying to come in from a side street. And then there's always the person that will be generous enough to allow you to take up space in front of them and um, how misaligned we can be with our internal sense of time being off with someone else as well if you're in a hurry to get somewhere mm. yes I feel like you can uh, tell a lot about a person from the way that they drive I yes maybe in a moment I, I think well you can tell a lot like you can tell I'm building on this you can tell as far as you understand driving Mm. because I at one point did the <gasps> of because somebody was turning too close they were driving I was a passenger and then they made the point to me that they're a professional driver their 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 limits of tolerance are more finely attuned than mine and we're not going to crash into that thing that I thought we were going to crash into because they actually have four five six hours more per day of practice than I do mm. But sometimes professional drivers can get into oh, a absolutely. lot of accidents uh, yeah. because of that assumption exactly. that they know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, because you become a bit lazy when you think, "Oh, I got this," I and got that this, arrog yeah. arrogance is dangerous. I think absolutely. like driving is such a um, perfect place to um, uh, practice balance between arrogance and confidence. So you have to be confident enough 
to be safe. Mm. You can't be one of those drivers who is just, you know, umming and ahhing too much. But if you're orally arrogant, it's yes. not going to be okay. So that balance of, you know, yeah. in betweenness. Mm. Then there's the context of it where by on public roads you have professionals and amateurs. Whereas on a racetrack, all professionals in f- fireproof suits with roll cages. Uh, and then different countries and different cultures and what is the law versus what is a recommendation. Mm. <laughs> How do you cross the road? I think it's just as cultural as anything else and changes over time. And the Australia's economy is built on a certain amount of population increase and those populations are pooling in the capital cities. So the ease of mobility that we grow up with is not the one that we inherit. Mm. And so then there's frustration there as well. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And as different uh, scales of moving vehicles take up the same space as well, like thinking about cyclists or um, pedestrians versus cars and buses and so there's that constant negotiation of space as well like in terms of scale and 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 speed as well but um yeah i mean it feels like you know more recently in yeah over the last few years there's um an increased awareness of cyclists on the road at least and the kind of you know i've Maybe it's developing a habit, you know, to look over your shoulder and make sure there's a cyclist there. Mm. Um, but maybe delegating the cycleways as well, you know, that that's that reminder again to just, oh, there are other people using the road um, other than cars to be aware of them. Um, I think scale plays a lot. Uh, so in Netherlands, you can't tie a bike up out the front of a train station because there's 4,000 bikes there because everybody's ridden their bike to the train station. Mm. So you have to go on the elevator with your bike into an underground bike parking lot. And then it's not as convenient as it is for us here when we are in the minority. And that's the same with going to the beach, for example. You go on a work day, it's much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's also just in places where people grew up driving along their beaches. And then once you get... And that's fine for four cars a day, but it's not fine for 40 cars a day. And so then it gets taken away because of scale. And then you feel like something's been taken away from you in the way that you learned how it was okay to inhabit space, Mm -hmm. Uh, et cetera. And then you identify with your interface. You see the reflection of your car in the window and you're like, that's me. So, Mm. and just the relationship to it, it as a statement of uh, class and wealth and political alignment. Mm. But we'll get, we'll get, it's, it's just a, it's a phase. I think automobiles are going to be like a eight, six, eight, nine, ten generation phase and then we'll get over it. Mm. There was a time before, there'll be a time after. Space shuttles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we shuttle the space. Flying cars and all that. It's coming. The flying cars are the tunnels. Because all you need, flying car, what flying cars give you are three-dimensional roadways. And so if you tunnel, then mm. you get three-dimensional roadways. Mm. 
yeah, I was hoping that the tram system would be sunk underground, the one that went through the city, because I think that makes much more sense mm. to just have an open boulevard and to have a metro, but... You know, I'm not on the council. (laughs) (laughs) But then I also think Australia does really well with elevators in a way that New York is real shit at Mm. to to try and get any public transport for someone who has mobility requirements. I think it's interesting that rich don't like to share space, which is why public transport, while we have this huge group of rich people, Uh. is never going to take on because... It's just the fact that the people who have money don't like being next to other people as much. They like to be, it seems to me, yeah. in their own little spaces with maybe their family yeah. and group of friends. But, but have you ideas. been to countries where you're the rich person? No, I've never been to that experience. <laughs> I've been to places where, by, by local standard just by the fact that I earn money in Australian dollars, I can afford to take private air-conditioned transport um, instead of overcrowded, stacked on top, hanging off the side of the public transport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. And if I, ch- if I don't choose to, it's because I'm adventuring or something, <laughs> which is what, like a wild... Uh, which is wild... And also, everybody on there would probably prefer to be, like, in a seat, air-conditioned, with a seatbelt, mm. instead of jammed in, no air-conditioning, just, like, on a flat seat that could lurch forward at any moment. Mm. And for by, by me having the ability to, but not doing something that they would like to if they had the ability to, that's a whole clusterfuck that I don't... I'm not going to pretend to understand what the right thing to do is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... Probably there is a flow-on effect from your belief in entitlement of private ownership. Of course, bubbles over into everything else in your life. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then what you're used to. Mm. And how long time, how long it takes in time. I would love to bus to the beach because then I don't have to park or drive home or think about it, but it takes three times as long. Mm. Yeah, but if you had money, you would just take a cab, so you don't have to worry about. True. So you you could still avoid. Or the if public. I didn't have a vehicle, I would drive. I would take a cab, but I drive. So I'm saying the private the private transport, private transport is the same as private living. Maybe like maybe it's wild that we have two bedroom apartments at all that they exist as a phenomena. Mm. maybe multi-generational households even if it's not your family other way to go but it's not Mm. I'm not at a place in my um, what's the word Uh, spiritual development where I probably would feel comfortable yeah yeah it's totally cultural Mm. I'm from Croatia and we all we are raised in apartment blocks there and I um, felt like, you know, relatively coming, that I was coming from relatively affluent family, not rich, but middle class, just the fact that each child had its own room, although my brother shared a room, but mm-hmm. I as a girl had my own. 
but you know we didn't have gardens and multiple levels of houses and now the apartment that seemed affluent to me back home here seems like a poverty <laughs> it's yeah. just the scale of um experience is so uh different and also living in apartment is like uh, living in a total communal setting because you would borrow a flour or sugar or coffee from a neighbor mm -hmm. as a normal and here you feel you, you you never feel like you should be knocking on your neighbor's doors it seems you could start that yeah <laughs> there's somewhere in my apartment block that has that operates like that and and because he's always been there as people come and go I think he sets the standard. But apartment mm. blocks lend themselves to it. That's what I mean. But yeah. houses, if you lived in a house... Then there's like on the, the next other door. extreme where you live in the country and it's a 20-minute drive to your neighbour, but they're the closest <laughs> human being that there is, and so you rely on them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anything else? Do you want to... Any mic drops? Mic drop moments? <laughs> No, it's been wonderful to chat. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.